So Zechariah 1, verses 1 to 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. If you could now turn to Mark 1, verse 9 to 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Thank you, Sarah, and hello, everyone. Uh, it's really wonderful to see you here this morning, and uh, those of you who are here in the building, but also those who uh, perhaps are at home online. Um, I'm so glad you're here, especially as we begin this term, uh, this series in Zechariah. Um, this is something we settled upon kind of in the middle part of last year, and I've really been looking forward to this series ever since then. Uh, we hope that this book is going to be really useful for us at this particular time that we find ourselves in. Um, I am conscious, though, that it, it may not be a very familiar book for many of us. I hope for that reason alone you're kind of excited about what's in the term ahead. Um, but more than that, I, I think this is a book that is going to really kind of examine and stretch and grow our hearts in uh, their love and trust and devotion to God. Um, this is not a book about outward religion. This is a book that's about what's going on in our hearts and it's about our affections and our priorities and our hopes and our confidence. Uh, on top of all that, though, it, it's also a book that paints a really vivid picture for us, multiple vivid pictures, in fact. We'll see that from next week. To fire our imaginations with the knowledge of what God has done, is still doing and is yet to do up ahead in the future. 
In other words, it's a book that is about the reality at the heart of all reality, the kingdom of God that has come and is coming. All of which, I think, we talk about the kingdom of God, that really takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Zechariah is going to help us get to know Jesus better as well. Um, time again, uh, time and again, uh, when Jesus and the gospel writers wanted to make clear who he was, he, his identity, his mission, um, the book in the Old Testament that they reach for, uh, second only to the book of Psalms, is this book of Zechariah. And uh, so this is going to help us understand more about the Lord Jesus. So, friends, we're in for a treat this term. I hope you anticipate that. I, I hope you will pray for all of us uh, across our church in our Bible study groups, here on Sundays, those who are preaching, leading studies, that as we dive into the book of Zechariah together, God might make us wise for salvation and he would equip us for every good work. Uh, This morning, though, it's really an introduction to the book and it's the same introduction that the book itself gives, just these first six verses of chapter one. And so it begins, uh, if you've got an outline, you can see the first heading, uh, when expectations and reality don't meet, still the Lord reigns. Because even in just the very first verse, we are alerted to the fact that not everything is right for the people of God. Not everything is quite the way it ought to be. So verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. And that may not sound too dramatic. After all, isn't this the way that a number of the Old Testament prophets begin? We kind of get introduced to the prophet and then we find out the name of the king who was reigning at the time. And you think, absolutely, that's how a number of the prophets begin. But in Zechariah 1.1, the king who is named is not an Israelite king. He's a foreign king. Darius is a Persian king. And of one thing we can be sure, if ever your national history begins to be recorded in terms of kind of foreign kings and when they ruled, you can be pretty certain that not everything is the way it ought to be. So what's going on here? Why Darius rather than an Israelite king? Well, to understand that, we've got to get our heads a little bit around some of the history of what was going on for the people of Israel and and what had been going on for the people of Israel. And we get a little hint of that in verse 4, when God says to the people through the prophet Zechariah, Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Uh, What God is doing in this verse is he's taking the people back to the kind of several hundred years, really following the reigns of King David and Solomon. Because they were kind of Israel's glory years, weren't they? Um safe in the land, at rest from their enemies, honoured by the nations. Um, And at the heart of everything in Jerusalem was that magnificent temple building built by Solomon, you know, representing God's own living presence right in the midst of his people. Him is their God. They is the sheep of his pasture. It all fell apart after that, though. Uh, Politically, the kingdom splits in two, and so you end up what was uh, Israel as one, and now you get these two kingdoms, Israel in the north, it keeps the name Israel, and, and Judah in the south. And so that's politically, spiritually it's even worse because the people in both kingdoms, in all manner of ways, begin to turn against God. Uh, idolatry, uh, religious hypocrisy, social injustice. 
And so, yes, verse 4, God sent them his prophets time and again, warning them to turn from their sin, but they refused to listen, for which reason they did eventually themselves face the fierce anger of God that God had warned them about. Um, imagine, you know, being at the beach when a big swell comes in, and for a time, kind of wave after wave just seems to get bigger and bigger, and, and kind of that's what happens now for the people of God. Um, a series of kingdoms begins to rise up and to wash over them, and each one of them is bigger than the last. And so, first of all, the Assyrians, and, and the whole scale of the map changes. What was before the heart of the map is now down the bottom corner, and the Assyrian Empire fills the screen, and they destroy the northern kingdom in 722 BC. Uh, after that is, is the Babylonian kingdom. It's even bigger, really. And they come against the south. And in 597, 587, that kind of period, they, they come to Jerusalem, they destroy Jerusalem, they ransack the temple, they carry the people off into a decades-long exile where for years and years the Israelites sat by the rivers of Babylon weeping. After that then came kind of salvation is how it seemed at first. Although from the most unlikely direction, the, the mighty Persians, even bigger than the Babylonians as an empire, and Cyrus, their king, issued a decree that all the Jews could return to Jerusalem. And here's where Zechariah fits in, after this return from exile. But you see, the prophets had also spoken about this time, the return from exile, and and they had promised that it would be a time of peace and prosperity, abundance and bounty. They, they had promised that it would be a full restoration of all the blessings of the covenant. And the temple would be rebuilt and God would come back to live with his people again. And a king would be established once more on David's throne and they'd enjoy the honour of the nations. The only problem was 20 years into that return from exile, and that's where we're up to by the second year of Darius, 20 years into that return from exile, and it seems like really none of those promises has come to pass. None of those promises really feels like it's been fulfilled. No temple, no great time of peace or prosperity, no king on David's throne, no honour from the nations. Friends, what are God's people to do when expectations and reality don't meet? Doubtless, we all go through times where the thought occurs to us that life really isn't anywhere near where we would like it to be. Now, maybe that was how you felt when you woke up this morning. I suspect it's how lots of us have felt many mornings over the last two years. This sense that life isn't where we wish it was. Maybe a relationship that doesn't follow the path we wanted. Uh, a serious illness that comes at really just the wrong time. An unexpected crisis that crashes in on all our well-laid plans. A leader who lets us down. Maybe even the thought that God has let us down. What should we do in such moments? How should we respond to God, what should we conclude about God? How would we seek to keep building each other, encouraging each other in such situations? This is at least part of the challenge that Zechariah addresses to the people of God. 
But you see, it's at this very moment that we need to remember what it was that happened in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, which is that the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And remember that the word Lord there in the small capital letters, that's not just some kind of polite title, like when politicians go around addressing each other as, you know, the honourable member for such and such. No, no, in the Old Testament, we see the word Lord in those small capital letters. That's the personal name of God, the name Yahweh, the name that God had disclosed to the people of Israel, but no one else. Only they knew this name of God. And so it seems at first from verse 1 that maybe Darius is the king who really matters, but he isn't at all. Now, the king who matters is the living Lord, Yahweh, who comes near to speak to his people. Now, in verse 3, it all jumps up a gear, or several gears, really, as God's name is completely supercharged. Because now he is the Lord Almighty, which literally kind of means Yahweh of armies, of mighty angelic armies. And just as a matter of emphasis, so we don't miss the point, it's the name used of God three times in verse 3, and once again in verse 4, and one last time in verse 6. Not to mention 48 other occasions through the book of Zechariah. See, the point for Zechariah's listeners is unmistakable, isn't it? When expectations and reality don't meet, when life isn't anywhere near where they want it to be, still the Lord reigns. Still Yahweh comes close to speak to his people. Still he is Yahweh of mighty angelic armies. It is not Darius who holds in his hand the future of God's people. It is the Lord Almighty. And friends, the same is still true for us today, but even more so. Because if in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, we also know that in these last days he's spoken to us even more decisively, even more clearly by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who after he'd provided purification for sins by his death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. He is in fact above every rule and authority, every power and dominion. God has placed all things under his feet. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. He holds in his hands our past, our present, and our future. Now, what does that mean for us when we go through those moments and life doesn't feel like it's anywhere near where we wish it was? Our expectations and our reality aren't lining up very well. Well, it means we need to keep hearing this word of God so that we can continually learn and relearn be reminded and remind one another the Lord reigns. What do you want from us though? Well, second point, 
Uh, The Lord who reigns urgently calls people to return to him so that he might return to them. Verse 3 just couldn't be any clearer about this, could it? This is, uh, therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. See, what God wants from his people is what God always wants from people. Not religion, but relationship. Relationship that springs from hearts that love and trust and are devoted to him in service. Uh, To return, it's really another way of saying to repent. Um, It's much more than simply feeling bad about something or even maybe feeling sorry for something. Repentance is deeply practical. It involves all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and every thought, word and deed. But even before it's practical, repentance is relational. To repent is to turn back to God from having been turned away from God. Just as the fundamental aspect of Israel's sin in verse 4 was their refusal to listen to God or pay attention to his words, so now the fundamental aspect of their repentance will be to listen and respond to God's words. So repentance is practical and repentance is relational. But because of the reality of God's anger, repentance is also urgent. It's not something that can be safely put off for another day. Now, we heard this in in Mark chapter 1, didn't we? In the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I mean, you stop and think about it. You go, well, how would Jesus begin? How would I expect Jesus to begin his public ministry? What would I expect him to begin preaching about? But we heard in, in Mark 1, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. There's no preamble to it. There's not a lot of warm-up. It's just straight into it. Repent. And it's the same here in Zechariah 1. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, Return from what, though? Um, Because, you know, here in these verses, there's not really any specific indication of a sin that they need to turn from. The, the, the call to return to God is, is general, it's open-ended. So what are they returning from? Well, uh, perhaps here we can get some help from the prophet Haggai uh, in, in the pages immediately before the book of Zechariah. You, we compare the, the opening verses of Haggai and Zechariah, you find out that uh, Haggai began to prophesy just two months before Zechariah. So these guys are really overlapping in their ministries. Here's what Haggai tells us about what was going on for the people of Israel. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, this temple, remains a ruin? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. You expected much, but see, it's turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Do you see the problem? 
Uh, 20 years into the return from exile, the reason the temple has not been rebuilt is because the people have been building their own houses instead. In other words, the thing that should have been of first importance, that the Lord Almighty be rightly honoured by his people before the eyes of the nations, it is dropped down to second, third, fourth place on the list. But this is sometimes what can happen, isn't it, when we go through those challenging times and reality and expectations don't line up and we feel perhaps like God has let us down. The wind can easily go out of our spiritual sails a little bit. And maybe we lose our zeal and become a bit apathetic. And we lose our joy and become a bit lukewarm. And we lose our confidence and we become a bit complacent. Oh, sure, if we were stopped in the street and asked whether or not we still think God is important, we would say yes. But maybe if we were really to examine our hearts, we would have to admit that he is no longer the most important, no longer first in our hearts. Now, friends, across the day today, I want to say this as gently as I can because I have neither a direct word from God on the matter nor the courage of the prophets. Uh, But I think this may well be a really important word of God for us right now. We all know how challenging the last two years have been. There's no surprises about that. And for many of us, in all sorts of ways, the reality of life hasn't been anything like what we were expecting And we know that things have been better here than in many parts of the world, but still, I think that for many of us, maybe even for most of us, fear for our physical health, concern for our families, months of lockdown and all sorts of other restrictions, a complete lack of certainty about the future. These things have all conspired to turn us inward a little bit. At times, perhaps away from each other in practical love and from our commitment to keep building each other to maturity in Christ. At times, perhaps away from the world in mission and from our commitment to partner in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Most seriously of all, perhaps, at times, even away from God himself. And that process we heard last week in Dan's sermon of breathing in God's word regularly and breathing out to God in prayer regularly. And if we were stopped in the street and asked whether or not we still think God is important, of course we would say yes. But perhaps if we were pushed, we would have to admit that he is no longer the most important, no longer the first in our hearts. And so perhaps the thing that should be of first importance, that the Lord Jesus Christ be rightly honoured by his people before the eyes of a watching world, has dropped down to second or third or fourth spot on the list. Now, friends, if... Any of that is accurate. And there's an if in that sentence. 
That's something that each of us individually and all of us together will need to humbly assess before the Lord. But if any of that is accurate, then we have some repentance to do together. And we have some returning to God to do together. Because that's what God wants from us. That's what God's word urgently calls his people to do, to return to him with all our hearts, to recalibrate our priorities, to set aside any indifference or complacency, to turn away from everything that hinders, anything that hinders, any sin that so easily entangles. And to return to our Lord wholeheartedly. And it needs to be urgent because God's anger is real. And it needs to be to God, because really where else would we go than to God to escape from the anger of God? Uh, One of my favourite TV shows is uh, Would I Lie to You? If you've not seen it, uh, panellists take turns, they read out outrageous statements of things that have supposedly happened to them, and then the opposing team has to ask questions to try and work out is it true or false. In one episode, Lee Mack reads out this statement... I was genuinely invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding today, but I said no because I had to come here and do this. Um, they make it clear in the episode that it, the episode was filmed on the day of the wedding, so you know, there's a plausibility there, um, much to Rob Brydon and David Mitchell's consternation. Now, I won't give away here whether or not it was true or false, but I mean, it's a crazy, crazy thought, isn't it? That you couldn't be invited, you could be personally invited by royalty to attend their wedding and then decline the invitation because of something as mundane as filming a TV show, even one as good as Wilty. How much more when the invitation that comes to us is not from British royalty, but from royalty with a capital R, from the king who has risen from the dead and who now reigns from heaven above at God's right hand? Inviting us into relationship with himself, both in this age and for all eternity. We dare not refuse him, do we? Because, final point, really briefly, the Lord who reigns has proven his word so that people might learn to respond to his call. Have a look with me at verse 5. God says, Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? See, it's not just an interesting fact of history back in verse 4, that when God was very angry with the ancestors, and he called them and warned them to turn away from sin, and they didn't listen. That's not just interesting history. The, The thing that matters even more than that is because the ancestors refused to listen or pay attention to God, therefore God's word and God's decrees overtook them completely. The very judgment he had promised was the very judgment they experienced and they went into exile. In other words, to put it really plainly, when it comes to following through on his word, God's record is clear and consistent and completely unambiguous. And for that reason, it should be very clear to everyone the importance of urgently responding to his call to repent wholeheartedly, to turn back to him. 
And how brilliant that this is exactly what Zechariah's hearers did at the end of verse 6. Did you notice that? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. They heard this word of God through their prophet, and they repented. But remember that the call to repent is not all that there was in verse 3. There was also the promise of restored relationship with God. And since when it comes to following through on his word, God's record is clear and consistent and completely unambiguous. Therefore, friends, I want to say with confidence to you today that the promise of the gospel for us to believe is right here. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Zechariah and we pray that you would use it in the term ahead to make us wise for salvation and equip us for every good work. But we pray especially today that we would hear your call in any way that we need to, to return to you in our hearts. Help us to do that individually. Help us to do that together. Help our lives to be characterised by constant turning back to you. And thank you that the promise is sure that you long to be in that restored relationship with us, your people. And you've given us your son so that it might be possible. Amen.